Scottsdale, Arizona, is the kind of community that most people would love to call home. Clean streets, low crime rates, a thriving economy. It seemed to have it all. It was, after all, known as the Beverly Hills of Arizona. Phyllis Monahan had lived in Scottsdale all of her life. A medical technician who worked at Emanuel Hospital, she was a divorced mother of two who was active in her community and devoted to her family. Everyone who knew her loved Phyllis. She was the kind of woman that made friends easily. You could count on her. When Phyllis left her small, two-bedroom home on the morning of August 1st, 1987, she had no idea that she was about to come face to face with something beyond all imagining. After all, it was an ordinary day. The sky was cloudless, and she was looking forward to the 15-minute walk to work. She was already thinking about the weekend and the trip they had planned at the family cottage, the perfect thing to do on a summer weekend, until fate intervened, and she came face to face with the weird. I am Dan Lejoie. And I'm Riley Stewart. And on this week's episode, The Abduction of Phyllis Monahan. Uh, no! I can't do this, Riley. I can't either. I'm trying, but I can't. You... You forced us into an alleyway of conformity, and I refuse to venture any more into your dark paths. I feel the same way. I, I just feel like one of those really serious true crime podcasts. Your dumpster of creativity will not suck me in. Yeah. Like it did those young children at the end of the movie, uh, The NeverEnding Story. When Farquhar, Far, Far... Atreyu. No, it's the boy who's reading the book that's on that luck dragon. What's the luck dragon's name again? Oh, I just know that the, the little sort of kid that belongs is Atreyu. Yes, who's who's the, the other boy is reading about for the majority of the, the film. Anyway, I ain't doing that crap. In fact, we're not even going to do the story of, what's her name? Phyllis Monahan. Yeah, frig you, Phyllis Monahan. We don't care if you're abducted. You tried to abduct our podcast, and now you're getting the boot out of the door, Phyllis. You know, I don't even care about telling the story of Phyllis because rumor has it she just did it for insurance. Well, and the fact is she disappeared literally for an hour and a half. <laughs> and and there, there are many accounts that she was seen at Foot Locker buying a new pair of sneakers for her boyfriend, Todd. Do you ever go to Foot Locker? I went there recently looking for sneakers, and I actually felt a little old and out of place. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It has that vibe. I, I have not been to a store like that uh, maybe since I was a teenager. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm not alone. I, I, I make my own shoes in the garage now and have for about 12 years. Well, there you go. I use old tires, brooms, uh, dog toys. You, well, you're a dog owner now, too, so you know how many dog toys are lying around the house at any given time. Perfect for a running shoe. Okay, well, we're back. We are back. What a long hiatus that was, Riley. I know. We had a lot to deal with, and it's funny because I didn't even know if you and I were going to be able to come back this soon because, as probably most people know, because the news has made sort of the international uh, rounds, is that we're in the midst of a, a truck convoy that's locked down our downtown core. 
Well, beyond and be, and the and and surrounding areas, and and I would go so far as to say it's not really a convoy. It's more of a you know a white nationalist insurrection. I said it. There you go. Well, it's not a it's not a pleasant gathering. That's for sure. It's not, and it's been um, you know a difficult two years with the pandemic, and now to have to deal with this at the tail end of it, it's it's quite overwhelming. And I, I like you wasn't sure if we were going to be able to record. I'm glad that we are. I think for you and I, on a very personal note, this is uh, a much needed distraction and a little bit of light at a very dark time. And I hope uh, for our listeners, I know some obviously are here in our city or, and certainly a large contingent of Canadian listeners who are being impacted because this is happening across the country with these yeah. far right uh, protests. Uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that, uh, uh, you know, that we bring a little bit of joy into your day, even if it's just for an hour. Well put, well put. And you know what? I was really excited because I got to walk in a march and I haven't done that in such a very long time because there hasn't really been anything that I thought was worthy of that. Yeah. And um, I, I walked in a march and it 4, felt really good. Strong. Yeah. And uh, the city's kind of rising up and that's good. And I don't, I don't want to have a big political discussion about it. But anyway, yeah. that's what's going on in Ottawa. So Dan, we haven't seen you since before Christmas. What's up, man? I am uh, eagerly awaiting the end of this pandemic. My family is all uh, is almost all fully vaccinated now. Amen. My wife and and son and I are all fully vaccinated. My daughter will have to go for a third a shot okay. at the end okay. of March, and then right. our lives will start to return to normal. No, I can't wait. I cannot wait. And then we'll have some freedom. But enough of that, Riley. I've got a big top. Like this is one of the big stories that I've been sitting on for a long time. My research for this story, it's like I, almost a year. That uh, ago that I started researching this topic. Amazing. So it uh, it's something that I, it almost became so big that I was nervous about embarking on the actual compilation. Right. Of you course. and I talked a little bit about maybe, maybe making this a two parter, and, uh-huh. and and we'll see as we record this. And so, folks, if this ends up being a two parter, uh, Riley's going to cut this part out, and it'll sound so seamless when. It just is a two-parter. No, I think we're going to fit this all into one part tonight. I've really tried to um, make this as lean, but also keeping all the important parts out. So, Riley, are you ready for season four and a big story knocking at your door? I am so ready. It's so good to be back. And uh, just before you start, I just want to say thanks, everybody, for holding on um, because it was like a six-week break. But we had to do that. There's been a lot of stuff going on, like I said, in the community. A lot of stuff going on with us personally. So... We're so glad to be back, and thank you for sticking with us, and here we go. It was a little recharge. All right. Yeah. In the fall of 1888, a man known only as Jack the Ripper stabbed and disemboweled five London sex workers in a killing spree that to this day ranks as one of the most famous and unnerving of all time. A full 130 years later, the name Jack the Ripper still sends chills down the spine, not only because of the horrific nature of the murders, but because they were never caught. Have you heard of Jack the Ripper? (laughs) Imagine. No. (laughs) In the mid-19th century, Britain experienced an influx of Irish immigrants who swelled the populations of the major cities, including the east end of London. The parish of Whitechapel in London's East End became increasingly overcrowded, with the population increasing to approximately 80,000 inhabitants by 1888. Work and housing conditions worsened, and a significant economic underclass developed. Robbery, 
violence, and alcohol dependency were commonplace. And the endemic poverty drove many women to prostitution to survive on a daily basis. Between 1886 and 1889, frequent demonstrations led to police intervention and public unrest. Anti-Semitism, crime, nativism, racism, social disturbance, and severe deprivation influenced public perceptions. The Whitechapel was a notorious den of immorality. Such perceptions were strengthened in the autumn of 1888 when the series of vicious and grotesque murders attributed to Jack the Ripper received unprecedented coverage in the media. Amazing. Sounds like my kind of place. Certainly this wasn't planned this way, but I'm just hearing about, you know, what Whitechapel was like, and it makes me think of our city these days. It makes me think of the world these days. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's happening here is is is, is happening in so many different places, isn't it? Uh -huh. All right, so let's dive right into it. The murders. The large number of attacks against women in the East End during this time adds uncertainty to how many victims were murdered by the same individual. The highest number that I've seen is in the 50s, that Jack the Ripper may have killed 50 people. But if you start really uh, delving into all these victims, it seems very, very unlikely that it was anywhere close to that number. I'd never heard this before. I thought it was a very contained number of victims. The agreed upon is a very contained number of victims. Sorry, the common consensus is an agreed number. There are 11 separate murders, though, stretching from the 3rd of April, 1888, to, the, to um, February 13th, 1891, that the London Metropolitan Police investigations sort of called the Whitechapel murders. And these 11 are kind of the... Um, had the most serious consideration. Now, opinions vary, though, as to whether these murders should be linked to the same culprit. But five of those 11 Whitechapel murders, known as the Canical Five, are widely believed to be the work of the Ripper. So there's five that are like this. This very much looks like it was the same person. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Good. Okay. I didn't, you know what? I actually didn't know it was five. I thought it was like two. Well, it's interesting. There are people that will say even the five are not necessarily all connected. It, this is what kind of, this is the other layer of this story is there's so many odd question marks attached to it. Well, and, and also police investigation isn't then what it is today where their what's, forensics aren't as evolved, right? Correct. Um, but what's interesting is how advanced their techniques were then and leading edge they were then compared to maybe other police forces of their time. Okay, interesting. Great. Wee. So most experts uh, point to deep slash wounds to the throat, followed by extensive abdominal and genital area mutilation, the removal of internal organs, and progressive facial mutilations as the distinctive features of the Ripper's modus operandi. So these are the common things you'll find in all of the victims. So these five women, uh, their names were Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Mm -hmm. The body of Marianne Nichols, uh, who is again agreed to be the first, was discovered at about 3.40 a.m. on Friday, the 31st of August, 1888, in Bucks Row, Whitechapel. Nichols had last been seen alive approximately one hour before the, the discovery of her body by a Mrs. Emily Holland, with whom she had previously shared a bed at a common lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitafields, walking in the direction of Whitechapel Road. Her throat was severed by two deep cuts, 
one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Wow. And I'm just going to say this here too at this point. I meant to say this a bit earlier. Obviously, this is Jack the Ripper. And there's some really graphic things that I'm going to be talking about. So just as a, uh, as a heads up to our listeners, if you find this stuff gross and queasy, this is as about as gross as I've ever gotten, I think. I think this is right up there with, the, uh, with the, my werewolf story. I was just going to bring that up again. <laughs> and I even, I even hemmed and hawed on whether or not I was going to include all the details, but they actually are important in terms of understanding what happened to these women and the links between the bodies. Okay. And it's just so weird. It's very weird. Yeah. So her genitals have been stabbed twice and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep jagged wound causing her bowels to protrude. Several other incisions inflicted to both sides of her abdomen had also been caused by the same knife. Each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward thrusting manner. One week later, on Saturday, September 8th, 1888, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered at approximately 6 a.m. near the steps to the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. I've seen pictures of this too. Uh, this is like when we say backyard, we think maybe of suburbs and backyards. This is more like a small, very dark courtyard. Right. Yes. Okay. Cobbles, stones, and brick. Like they would have been very hidden in this area. Okay. Okay. So there's no garden. There's no, no sandbox and no clothesline. And and I really want to paint the picture of what Whitechapel is, um, you know, 80,000 plus people crammed into a geographically pretty small area. And desperately poor. The poorest. Yeah. Okay. The, the the smells of this city, this part of the city are apparently like people who weren't used to it would choke. Like it was overpowering the smell of raw sewage and, and death and decay. This is, is a very decrepit part of London. Right. Okay. So where was I? As in the case of Marianne Nichols, the throat was severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder and another section of skin and flesh plus her small intestines being removed and placed above her right shoulder. Chapman's autopsy also revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and genitals had been removed. Oh dear. At the inquest into Chapman's murder, a witness, Miss Elizabeth Long, describes having seen Chapman standing outside 29 Hanbury Street at about 5.30 a.m. in the company of a dark-haired man wearing a brown deer stalker hat and dark overcoat, and, as she described, of a shabby-genteel appearance. According to this eyewitness, the man had asked Chapman the question, Will you? To which Chapman had replied, Yes. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were both killed in the early morning hours of Sunday, the 30th of September, 1888. Stride's body was discovered at approximately 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard off Burner Street in Whitechapel. The cause of death was a single clear-cut incision across her neck, which had severed her left carotid artery and her trachea before terminating beneath her right jaw. I always have a problem with that word too. Is it carotid? Carotid? Carotid artery? Carotid. 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 Yeah. Carotid. carotid. Oh, I am a master of carotid. Get it? Like karate? 
Oh my God. That was the worst joke. That was most, that doesn't even qualify as a dad joke. No, that's not even a joke. That's just, no, I, I, I should bury that in the backyard with the dead bird. Jesus. (laughs) The absence of any further mutilations to her body. So she just has these two cuts on her neck has led to uncertainty as to whether Stride's murder was committed by the Ripper or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Several witnesses later informed police they had seen Stride in the company of a man in or close to Burner Street on the evening of September 29th and in the early hours of the 30th, but each gave deferring descriptions. Some said that her companion was fair, others dark. Some said he was shabbily dressed, others well-dressed. Again, the reality is this part of the city is very dark. Right. To see someone well, you'd have to be pretty close up. I wonder if they had those beautiful lamps that you always see in movies where they're, the guy goes along and lights all the gas lamps. Yeah, and it's, yeah that, that's exactly how this would have been. And then people start singing and it's Mary Poppins. Well, and that's the, Bert is one of the suspects. I thought so. His accent's fake, I can chim, tell. Chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chiroo. I am a murderer, a murderer who hates you. Oh, you got to bury that in the backyard with the bird and yeah, my previous joke. Yeah. Edo's body was found in a corner of Mitre Square or Meter Square in the city, in the city, in the city of London. It came out like that. In the city of London, three quarters of an hour after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Stride. Her throat was severed from ear to ear and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep and jagged wound before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and her left arm. The left kidney and the major part of Edo's uterus had been removed and her face had been disfigured with her nose severed, her cheeks slashed and cuts vertically incised through each of her eyelids. Oh God. A triangular incision, the apex of which pointed towards Edo's eye had also been carved upon each of her cheeks and a section of the oracle and lobe of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the post-mortem upon Edo's body stated his opinion these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. A local cigarette salesman named Joseph Lawwind had passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder, and he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Edo's. A section of Edo's bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement in Goulston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55 a.m. And this is an interesting piece here. A chalk inscription upon the wall directly above this piece of apron read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. This graffiti became known as the Goulston Street Graffiti. The message appeared to imply that a Jew or Jews in general were responsible for the series of murders, but it is unclear whether the graffiti was written by the murderer on dropping the section of apron or was merely incidental and had nothing to do with the case. Or if it was the murderer, maybe he was just trying to mislead people into thinking that it was someone of Jewish descent when in fact it was not, right? Again, uh, there is heightened tension in Whitechapel these days and there's a lot of anti-Semitism that is running rampant. So such graffiti was commonplace in Whitechapel, so it may have had nothing to do with the case. Police Commissioner Charles Warren, though fearing that the graffiti might spark anti-Semitic riots, ordered the writing washed away before dawn. So say goodbye to that clue, but we do have the words. The final murder 
as consensus amongst experts would have us believe, was discovered at 10.45 a.m. on Friday, November 9th, 1888. And this is such a sad one. And, and what's crazy, Riley, is that all these murders I'm describing, there's pictures of them. You can f- see them. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. I didn't know they'd been photographed. Oh, by the police. Oh, can I tell you a funny story about that? A really quick aside. Not, it's not super funny, but it just really bothered me. Okay. So, you know, it's it well just odd. You know how it's super pandemic, and we're all watching tons of fucking Netflix and Amazon Prime that we shouldn't be watching. <laughs> um, I watched a true crime thing about this guy named Bobby Fisher, uh, not the chess guy, who murdered his family. What's this have to do with the blind thing? The blind just love wait. thing. He murdered his family and split. And in the documentary that I watched, they actually showed the bodies of his two children in their beds. They'd been burned. And it was really graphic. And I mean, I've watched a lot of true crime shit in my life, and I'm pretty resilient when it comes to that. Yeah. But I couldn't believe they showed the burned bodies of these two really small kids and the woman, the mother, because he he killed them and set them on fire. And I was... I was really taken aback. I, I was thinking, you know, like someone should tell us this was really unnecessary. Yeah. To see badly burned children lying on their burned mattresses. I, sometimes I, I get it. You, it's good to see the body. But in that case, what was added to the equation by showing us that? You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what, of what value was, was – it just disturbed me. And I've, now I've got that image stuck in my head. So the, the – my, where I started my research was with a book that I'll reference later uh, by Donald Rumblow, Rumblow. It's called Jack the Ripper, The Complete Case Book. And it's considered by many to be – it's an older book uh, but really well-written. He's a former mm-hmm. police constable himself in London. And he had access to all like the old police records. So that's what sort of sets his book apart. And in it, there is that he's got the photos in there. And it's um, it's something you don't unsee. I won't be posting these on our social media channels because I just find them too disturbing. And, and it's not necessary to understand the story. But if you want to look it up, you can. They're, on, they're probably online. But yeah, the, very upsetting. The, the photos that came from this final murder... I, I don't know why this one I find the worst. Maybe it's because it she's probably experienced the the worst outcome in terms of the torture that she might have gone through. Although she probably well, the, died the murders that, that you're describing again. I'm you're educating me tonight. They're violent. They're savage. And and, and became increase each one became more and more savage. Ugh. Okay. okay. So the final murder uh, occurs, again, I already mentioned this, but on uh, Friday, November 9th, 1888, it, that's when her body was discovered in the morning. The extensively mutilated and disemboweled body of Mary Jane Kelly was discovered lying on her bed in the single room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition, with her throat severed down to the spine, and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. Her uterus Kidneys and one breast have been placed beneath her head, another viscera from her body placed beside her foot, about the bed and sections of her abdomen and thighs upon a bedside table. The heart was missing from the crime scene. Oh. And there was also evidence in the room, too, uh, that the murderer had tried to burn a lot of things, which is really odd. There was soot all over the room, and it they were able to tell that it had to have been a very hot fire uh, because things in the room that don't normally melt had melted. 
Okay. Like a, uh, a kettle, the, the part that would attach like the handle to the kettle itself had met like, so it was, this person was trying to destroy something. Okay. But they don't have any idea what it was. No, it's, it, it was ash. It was all Oh, ashes. that's very compelling. That's very compelling. Each of the Canical Five murders were perpetrated at night, on or close to a weekend, either at the end of a month or a week. The mutilations became increasingly severe as a series of murders proceeded, except for that of Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. Nichols, the Ripper's first victim, was not missing any organs, but Chapman, Eddowes, and Kelly's all had organs removed and taken from their crime scene. Historically, the belief these Canical murders were committed by the same perpetrator is derived from contemporary documents which link them together to the exclusion of others. There's notably a letter written in 1894 by Sir Melville McNaughton, who was the Assistant Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police Service, and by Police Surgeon Thomas Bond in 1888, and they name these five in their respective letters as the only sure victims of the Ripper. So that's where the, the, the origin of the, we think for sure that these people were all killed by the same. Okay. I should note that McNaughton came, he, he wasn't serving at the time of the murders, but obviously it was still very fresh, the evidence, and, and he had access to all the um, investigators that had been working on this case. And a lot of investigators were working on this case. If only they had the advanced forensic capabilities that we have now, the outcomes would be so different. Well, just hold on, because maybe we still do have access to them to this day. I'll keep holding on. Isn't that a song? I'll keep holding on. By Extreme. When I just keep holding on one more day, what would you do? I'll keep holding on to you. You sound like a really medicated, crazy person. Well, there you go. We'd be outside the door looking and going, he's been singing that all day. <laughs> so Donald Rumbelow, who I just um, uh, mentioned his book, um, he argues that the Canical Five is a ripper myth and uh, that three cases, Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes, can definitely be linked to the same perpetrator, but that less certainty exists as to whether Stride the one who only had the slashes in her neck, and Kelly were also murdered by the same individual. Uh, Dr. Percy Clark, assistant to the examining pathologist of the time, linked only three of the murders and thought that they were perpetrated by weak-minded individuals induced to emulate the crime. There was a lot of copycatism happening, and this was a huge new sensation uh, in London and around the world. Oh, so it's very okay. possible, right, that this was the act of copycats. Okay. All right, so... I mentioned at the very beginning that there were there were are more murders that uh, may have been connected to the Ripper. Mary Jane Kelly is generally, though, considered to be the Ripper's final victim, and it is assumed that the crimes ended because of the culprit's death, imprisonment, institutionalization, institutionalization. I said it, or immigration. The Whitechapel murders filed details another four murders, though that occurred after the Canical Five. Those of Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, the Pynchon Street Torso, and Francis Coles. Whoa, wait. Now, wait. Now, wait. You know what I'm going to ask you. Yes, I know what you're going to ask me. <laughs> okay, you need to explain the Pynchon Street Torso. It's what funny that you say that? that, too, because I actually wasn't going to – I'm only going to talk about two of them because I, th I think only two of them stand out as possible Ripper victims. Uh, the Pynchon Street Torso was literally a torso that they found on the street under a bridge – 
and um, they never found the head, legs, or arms. And it had, and it had been mutilated and stabbed and stuff like that. Yeah, but didn't didn't fit any of the other patterns of the Ripper. The Pynchon Street torso. It's so disturbing. Yeah, that's really disturbing. What a dark time. Oh, oh, God, yeah. Right? And what a dark place to live. Again, this brings me back to Penny Dreadful, which we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. uh, how well they depict London of that time. And it is that time that we're talking about. Do you want to see a show that actually depicts it even better, according to people who I've spoken to who know history? Okay. There's a, a, a show with Tom Hardy, that bitchy British actor. Tom Hardy, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, it's called Taboo. Oh, and it's phenomenal. And it's a story about his revenge against the East India Company. Oh. And it is fucking brilliant. He produced it and it it shows you how dirty and dark. Because even I found Penny Dreadful looks a bit cinematic. Like yeah. it's a very produced. But he, uh, Tom Hardy, I heard him talking about it. They really wanted the audience to have the feeling of what it would have been like there. Muddy and dirty and People were hungry and it was just a time of like desperation. And the most powerful empire in the world, the seat of their yeah. power. And people are can't even live, uh, you know, day to day without knowing where their meals are coming from and whether they're going to die of like some weird disease and or get stabbed. And it was horrible. Does it make you wonder how many disenfranchised people in that particular time were actually murdered? That you'll never know about. Yeah. Because you could just pick a waif off the street who has no home and, you know, who's just begging or whatever and kill them. I mean, and if, if you got rid of the body effectively, no one would ever know. Same thing with the prostitutes, which not much has changed. Right. But you know what I mean? It's interesting to me on a, on a we uh, you could sort of see again that this move towards enlightenment coming into effect here where I, I, I am actually surprised and impressed that the police took this as seriously as they did. Like this was an mm-hmm. all out uh, manhunt to try and find this person. And I'll get into that a little bit more, like what they did for the investigation in, in a few minutes. Okay. All right. So of those, uh, after murders, two of them stand out to me as I think maybe potentially they could have been the Ripper. And this is important in terms of maybe narrowing down who some of the suspects are, which we'll get into. And that's part of, I think what's okay. kept people going on this. There's so many people that this could have been. Um, Alice McKenzie was murdered shortly after midnight on the 17th of July, 1889 in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She'd suffered two stab wounds to her neck and her left carotid artery had been severed. I said it right, Riley. You said it right. It's a hard word. Several minor bruises and cuts were found in her body, which also bore a seven inch long superficial wound extending from her left breast to her navel. Examining pathologist Thomas Bond believed this to be a Ripper murder, though his colleague George Bagster Phillips, who had examined the bodies of three previous victims, disagreed. I love his name. George Bagster. George Bagster Phillips. Some believe, though, that Mackenzie's murderer copied the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper to deflect suspicion from him. And that makes sense to me, too. It Like, he went through the motions of, of cutting, you know, across the torso, but it's superficial. He didn't actually disembowel. Right. And everything that we saw leading with those those first five is that it got increasingly worse. And this one certainly would have gone sort of in reverse. Uh-huh. At 2.15 a.m. on the 13th of February, 1891, police constable Ernest Thompson discovered a 25-year-old sex worker named Francis Coles lying beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens Whitechapel. 
Her throat had been deeply cut, but her body was not mutilated, leading some to believe Thompson had disturbed her assailant. Coles was still alive, although she unfortunately died before medical help could arrive and they could ask her questions. Oh my God. A 53-year-old stoker, James Thomas Sadler, had earlier been seen drinking with Coles and the two are known to have argued approximately three hours before her death. Sadler was arrested by the police and charged with her murder. He was briefly thought to be the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence in March of 1891. Another interesting case came before the Canical Five. A 30-year-old widow named Annie Millwood was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary. 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 You got it. What are you looking down at? I'm just listening to you. I'm just looking down at my keyboard. I'm not looking down at anything. I'm going to pull a Riley on you. I've never seen you do that before. I'm just, well, the microphone's different. It's in a different place. It also makes makes you look like you're falling asleep. I'm not falling asleep. No. (laughs) But I'm wondering if if the word that you're trying to say is canonical. What am I saying? Canical. Would you leave me alone with my pronunciation? What is it? Conical. No, canonical. Canonical. It means it's mean it's part of his canon. So I know what it means. You're, you're going after the guy, the kid with a speech impediment. Thank you. Oh, fuck. You're so... Now I feel like the shit bird. Yeah, good. No, no, but I think it's canonical. I don't Just, care. I, I, I'm, I find it funny how often I mispronounce words on this show. Oh, now I feel so bad. Good. I haven't seen you in six weeks, and now I'm I'm that bully. I'm the shit bird. You're canonical. Like moronical. Canonical. Canonical. Please, God, don't let me have to say that word again. Okay. Uh, so uh, another interesting case bef- uh, came before the canonical five. A 38-year-old widow named Annie Millwood was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary with numerous stab wounds to her legs and lower torso on the 25th of February, 1888, informing staff she had been attacked with a clasp knife by an unknown man. She was later discharged, but died from apparently natural causes on the 31st of March. Millwood was later postulated to be the Ripper's first victim, although this attack cannot definitively be linked to the perpetrator. What's too bad? If, if she had survived, they could have used her when they were interrogating suspects. The, the police lineup. I picture like eight guys all wearing black coats and top hats. Can you identify your killer no. or your, uh, your assailant? So yeah. the, the investigation. Frustratingly, the vast majority of the City of London police files relating to their investigation into the Whitechapel murders were destroyed in the Blitz of London between 1940 and 41. Uh, when, okay. when the city was being bombed by the Germans. However, the documents that do survive allow a detailed view of investigative procedures in the Victorian era. And it might surprise you uh, what they were able to accomplish. So a large team of policemen conducted house-to-house inquiries throughout Whitechapel. Forensic material was collected and examined. Suspects were identified, traced, and either examined more closely or eliminated from the inquiry. More than 2,000 people were interviewed, upwards of 300 people were investigated, and 80 people were detained. 2,000 people were interviewed. Now, that is a major under... They took this seriously. They really did. And I that is... Um, what's the word I'm trying to... I'm trying to think of. I wanted to say endearing to them, but they, they, they cared. 
you know? Yeah. And these are disenfranchised people. They're, you know. Well, and if you read, this is some of the stuff that I, you know, for time's sake, I cut out, but the police were shaken and some of them really did feel a, uh, they were almost like custodians to the area. They felt like the protectors to these disenfranchised people and women. They were only a few rungs up the social ladder, right? Right. Of course. Yeah. They were working guys. And, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you think it was the savagery of the crimes too that was just so disheartening? I think the savagery, the fact that they are picking on um, some of the most defenseless people. Of course. Yeah. That it was done at night. Uh, and then some of the other things I'm going to talk about a little bit later that, that occurred during the investigation um, and during the, this spree of murders, I think, left people very unsettled. So following the murders of Stride and Eddowes, the commissioner of the city police, Sir James Fraser, offered a reward of 500 pounds for the arrest of the Ripper. So 500 pounds at, I should have looked this up, but let's look this up. To see what the equivalent is? Yeah. I'm in the process right now of, of having to deal with bad exchange rates because I'm booking my flights to Scotland for August and oh my God. So it would be worth like $13,781 today. That doesn't seem right. Anyway, a lot of money. So butchers, slaughterers, surgeons, and physicians were suspected because of the manner of the mutilations. A surviving note from Major Henry Smith, acting commissioner of the city police, indicates that the alibis of local butchers and slaughterers were investigated with the result that they were eliminated from the inquiry. Some contemporary figures, including Queen Victoria, thought the pattern of the murders indicated that the culprit was a butcher or cattle drover on one of the cattle boats applied between London and mainland Europe. Remember, the timing of these murders was always at night and the end of a week or month. Uh, Whitechapel was close to the London docks and usually such boats docked on Thursday or Friday and departed on a Saturday or Sunday. The cattle boats were examined, but the dates of the murders did not coincide with a single boat's movements and the transfer of a crewman between boats was also ruled out. They did their homework and nothing came out of that. They were very thorough. So over the course of the Whitechapel murders, the police, newspapers, and other individuals received hundreds of letters Regarding the case, some letters were well-intentioned offers of advice as to how to catch the killer, but the vast majority were either hoaxes or generally useless. Hundreds of letters claimed to have been written by the killer himself, and three of these in particular are prominent. The Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. You Are you aware of these? Well, From Hell was the name of a movie and a graphic novel that inspired the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I have some familiarity. I saw the movie. I didn't think it was that great. Wasn't that Johnny Depp? Yes, of course it was. Yeah. Wasn't everything Johnny Depp back then? <laughs> like seriously. Oh God. The Dear Boss letter dated the 25th of September and postmarked the 27th of September, 1888, was received that day by the Central News Agency and was forwarded to Scotland Yard on the 29th of September. The letter read as follows. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. 
or gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You'll soon hear of me with me funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears and off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back that I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Oh, don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> ha. So initially, it was considered a hoax. But when oh. Eddowes was found three days later, after the letter's postmark, with a section of one ear obliquely cut from her body, the promise of the author to clip the lady's ears off gained attention. Wow. Eddowes' ears appeared to have been nicked by the killer incidentally during his attack. However, the, letters, the letter writer's threat to send the ears to the police was never actually carried out. The name Jack the Ripper was first used in this letter by the signatory and gained worldwide notoriety after its publication. The Saucy Jackie postcard was postmarked October 1st, 1888 and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. Can I just stop and clarify uh, one detail? Yes. Just one thing, because um, you went fast. So this is the first time the phrase Jack the Ripper had ever appeared was in his letter. Yes. Wow. Okay. So it wasn't something that the press invented. It wasn't something the police invented. It was in that correspondence. Well, some people will argue that that first letter was the press. Oh. Trying to be sensational? Like trying to create sensation. Exactly. Wow, that's shitty, if it's true. We'll get to that. Okay. Fake news, fake news. Ooh, fake news. Well, right? So the Saucy Jackie postcard uh, reads as follows. I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for police, thanks, for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. And, and you'll notice too, like I'm reading it verbatim. So there's some wording that doesn't make sense or the grammar seems off. That That's how it was written. Okay. Uh, the handwriting in this postcard was similar to the Dear Boss letter and mentioned again the canonical, canonical murders committed on the 30th of September of Stride and Eddowes, which the author refers to by writing double event this time and even mentions that he got cut off short. Okay. Right? Yeah, that gives gives it some truth. It does, it does. It has been argued that the postcard was posted before the murders were publicized, making it unlikely that a crank would hold such knowledge of the crime. However, it was postmarked more than 24 hours after the killings occurred, long after details of the murders were known and publicized by journalists, and had become general community gossip by the residents of Whitechapel. So it is possible that the person wasn't the, the, the murderer and knew. Okay. The From Hell letter was received by George Lusk, who was the leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, uh, which was a group of ordinary citizens that decided to take matters into their own hands and to, to try to figure out who was behind the murderers. 
so they were basically kind of doing a neighborhood watch, walking the streets, uh, putting up money to try to increase the purse for uh, discovering who uh, the Ripper was. So George Lusk, who's their leader, he gets this letter that begins by with the heading, From Hell. Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved. If for your tether piece I fried and ate it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Another brief piece of correspondence. Yes. The handwriting and style in this letter was unlike that of the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard. The letter came, though, with a small box in which Lusk discovered half of a human kidney, which had been preserved in ethanol. What's interesting is that Edo's left kidney had been removed by the killer, and the writer claimed that he fried and ate the other missing kidney half. There is disagreement over the kidney, though. Some contend that it belonged to Edo's, while others argue that it was a macabre practical joke. However, the kidney was examined by Dr. Thomas Openshaw of the London Hospital, who determined that it was human and from the left side, but he could not determine any other biological characteristics. If that had been today, of course, DNA would have been able to tell you who owned that kidney. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They would have had results very quickly. Scotland Yard published facsimiles of the Dear Boss letter and the postcard on the 3rd of October in the ultimately vain hope that a member of the public would recognize the handwriting. Police officials later claimed to have identified a specific journalist as the author of both the Dear Boss letter and the postcard. The journalist was identified as Tom Bullen in 1913, but a journalist named Fred Bess reportedly confessed in 1931 that he and a colleague at the Star had written the letter signed Jack the Ripper to heighten the interest in the murders and keep the business alive. I mean, I I think that that's probably true. It's possible it's not. Again, that might have been his last ditch at some fame, right? Such a shitty thing to do, though. That's such a shitty thing to do. Yeah. So it almost makes you think then perhaps the from hell one is the real one, especially the fact that a body part and the proper uh, piece of body was attached to the letter. Yeah, that's some pretty compelling evidence right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And totally written in a different style. If you look at that one, I didn't do it justice in terms of how poorly written it is. It is not someone who's very comfortable writing in the English language, or, or at least they put some effort into making it look like they weren't comfortable. So... At the end of October, Police Commissioner Robert Anderson asked Police Surgeon Thomas Bond to give his opinion on the extent of the murderer's surgical skill and knowledge. Bond's assessment was based on his own examination of the most extensively mutilated victim and the postmortem notes from the four previous canonical murders. He wrote, All five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, It is impossible to say in what direction the fatal cut was made, but arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the women must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case, the throat was first cut. Bond was strongly opposed to the idea that the murderer possessed any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge or even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. In his opinion, the killer must have been a man of solitary habits, subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, with the character of the mutilations possibly indicating sedariasis, 
which, of course, Riley, satoriasis, is the uncontrollable or excessive sexual desire in a man, something you have in spades. <laughs> yes, it's plagued me my entire life. Satoriasis, I've never heard that term ever. Is it still a, a term that's bandied about? Well, I mean, I looked it up. It's in the dictionary. Satoriasis. It sounds like a skin thing. I immediately thought of a skin thing because of psoriasis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's spelt differently. Though it's spelt like satyr, like the, the, uh, the Greek, uh, like yeah, Greek the mythology. Myth- mythological creature. You know, when I went to school, there was a girl who had psoriasis really bad, and she lost all her fingernails. Mm-hmm. I know. Psoriasis can be uh, very serious and extremely painful. Yeah, it was plaque psoriasis. That's that's bad shit right mm-hmm. there. That's a uh, yeah autoimmune disorder. Oh, is it? Yes, I believe so. Okay, I think so. I think so too. Yeah, I think you're right. Bond also stated that, and I quote: "The homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease." But I do not think either hypothesis is likely. There is no evidence the perpetrator engaged in sexual activity with any of the victims. Yet, psychologists suppose that the penetration of the victims with a knife and leaving them on display in sexually degrading positions with the wounds exposed indicates that the perpetrator derives sexual pleasure from the attacks. This view is challenged by others, of course, who dismiss that hypothesis as insupportable supposition, right? That is a tongue twister. Insupportable supposition. supposition. Hello, I'm insupportable supposition. So, Riley, you may be asking yourself, well, who are the leading suspects? Mm-hmm. I didn't know they had any any really big suspects. I thought it was still a mystery. There are some huge suspects, and I'm only going to, I again, there's a, a really wonderful website that gives you all, like, the case notes, and it's there's a lot of detail, and you can sift through that for several hours and only, and only read a, a portion of you know, just going through that list, uh, as well as uh, Donald Rumblow's list, and then there's some great websites out there too. I picked only the ones that I think are the most interesting, or, or perhaps most likely. Okay, that makes sense. So the first is Montague John Druitt. Although there may not be any concrete scientific evidence against him, the fact that the Jack the Ripper murders in London's East End ended after Druitt's suicide convinced one of London's top detectives, Melville McNaughton, that Druitt was in fact Jack the Ripper himself. Druitt was an Oxford-educated man from a fairly good family who was a practicing doctor. Ah. He was sexually insane, and that's in quotations, and his own family believed him to be the Ripper. Okay. So those who knew him best believed it. Yes. Oh, dear. Okay. Many experts believe Druitt was behind the murders as they are convinced that Jack the Ripper was a Whitechapel local. Druitt resided only a few miles away from Whitechapel on the other side of the Thames. And he was also seen in the Whitechapel area quite a bit around the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. Okay. On November 9th, 1888, seven weeks after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, which is believed to be Jack the Ripper's final murder, Druitt's body was found floating in the Thames. Investigators believed the cause of death was a suicide and that he had been at the bottom of the river for at least several weeks, so around the time of Mary Jane Kelly's murder. Oh, wow. Okay. So he drowned himself. Perhaps, right? Maybe he'd had that moment of clarity where like, oh my God, I'm a monster and I need to end this. Or someone drowned him to make it look like a suicide. Possibly. And a very 
very possible he could have been robbed and 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 then drowned or something like that. Here's a big one, and this is one of the this is one of the ones I knew as a kid, and this is where this story takes a real. You knew this as a kid. What kind of childhood did you have? Like seriously, when I was six, we sat around the supper table and talked about Jack the Ripper and God. And what favorite knife? Uh, mine was always the Bowie knife. Mama, let me play with the Bowie knife after supper. And then I'd get hit and thrown into the box. Thanks a lot, Mom, for a great upbringing. Did you say Bowie knife? A Bowie knife. Yeah, that's the only knife I know. Or steak machete. knife. Machete. Switch well, Machete's not really a... Oh, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Okay, I'm just not up on that. You know? You're a, you're what we call a blade idiot. <laughs> Thanks. In, in my knife circles, we scoff at people like you. I'm proud to be a blade idiot. I'm I I wear that with pride. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Right. I decide I'm going to nickname you now the Bagster because of that guy's <laughs> name. Hey, man, it's the Bagster. Yo, Bagster. Um. No, so this next one is the like the big one where they thought that perhaps the royal family was involved. So some people, the story that Prince Albert Victor may have committed the notorious Jack the Ripper murder surfaced during the 1960s. Oh, oh, oh. So, and he was the queen's nephew? All I know is there's a piercing named after him. Oh, really? Yeah, because he was like into like kinky shit. Like he was out there, right? Well, it's kinky shit. What is the definition of kinky shit? You know, Piercings. really? Piercings. No, that's not kinky. Uh, he was the Duke of Clarence and Avondale. Oh, so he was, yeah, he was the grandson of, of Queen Victoria. So uh, further allegations that he fathered a child with a Whitechapel woman emerged and that he had, that he and several others committed the murders to cover up his indiscretion. So he killed... The one of these victims was the mother of his child. He killed her, and then he had other people kill these other women to sort of cover it up to make it look like there was a weird serial killer on the loose. Right. Okay. None of these stories are grounded in fact or stand up against scrutiny. On the 30th of September, 1888, the date of the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, the prince was at Balmoral Castle in Scotland and was seen there by newspaper reporters. The court records show that he was never in London at the time of any of the murders. That being said, of course, that could have been doctored very easily. And that's why right, people right. Who, who fight for this one. I think it's sensational. I don't think there's any truth to it. All right, here's an interesting one. Uh, George Chapman, a.k.a. Severin Antonowicz Klausowski, originally from Poland, but later relocated to England. He was trained as a surgeon from 1880 to 1887. Then he moved to London sometime in 1887, where he eventually took the name George Chapman. Because he failed to fully qualify as a doctor, he started working at a barber shop, eventually running his own hairdressers by 1889. He was convicted and executed after poisoning three women, but is mainly known these days because some authorities suspected him of having been the notorious serial killer Jack the Ripper. One of the detectives at Scotland Yard, Frederick Aberline, is reported to have told the policeman who arrested Chapman, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. Speculation in contemporary newspaper accounts and books has led to Chapman becoming a possible suspect. The case against Chapman rests mainly on the point that he undoubtedly was a violent man with a misogynistic streak capable of carrying out the apparently motiveless murders of women. Although he is known as a poisoner and not a mutilator, Chapman was known to beat his wives and was prone to other violent behavior. 
once during a fight with his, and I say actual wife, sorry, he had a lot of women on the side that he pretended were his wives, even though he had an actual one at home. Once during a fight with his actual wife, whose name was Lucy Klazowski, he forced her down on their bed and began to strangle her, only stopping to attend to a customer who walked in to the adjoining shop he owned. When he left, she found a knife under the pillow, and he later told her, very calmly, that he had planned to kill her, even pointing at the spot where he would have buried her and reciting what he would have said to their neighbors. Oh my God. In some other points, he does fit the likely profile of the Ripper. For example, he was living in Whitechapel at the time of the murders, and he probably did have some medical knowledge. It is even suggested that he may have carried out a Ripper-style killing in New York City, the murder of Carrie Brown. But recent research suggests he did not reach the United States until after this case, which is where he eventually ended up. However, there is a lack of hard evidence against Chapman. Some criminologists have doubted his potential as a Ripper suspect on the basis of the known psychological motivations and behavior of serial killers, right? Normally, serial killers select a single uh, method of murder, uh, as well as having associated rituals. And as such, it is generally considered unlikely that a serial killer would go from butchering and disemboweling victims to the less physical method of poisoning. I agree 100%, 100%. Me too. Also, most yeah. scholars believe that Jack the Ripper selected victims who were previously unknown to him, while Chapman killed acquaintances. Yeah, that's a whole different, that's a whole different pathology. Yeah. All right. Walter Sickert. In the famous book, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, author, and some people will know this author, Patricia Cornwell, pinpointed art, uh, artist Walter Richard Sickert as the real Jack the Ripper, and even claimed to have found DNA evidence which linked Sickert to at least one of Jack the Ripper's letters. But even before her book, Sickert was believed to have been behind the Whitechapel murders since as far back as the 1970s. Sickert was born in Munich in 1860 and immigrated with his family to London in 1869. He was known for painting prostitutes, and some believe that he used to insert clues and symbols about Jack the Ripper murders into his artwork. Some experts suggest that the clues are so similar to the actual crime scenes that only the true murderer could have painted them. And if you take a look at his paintings, and he was a, like he was a famous, accomplished painter. I didn't. I I'm not into art history. Uh, and he painted the girls of the streets, the people of the yeah. He would and, see. and he was considered one of the the, the greats of his time in, okay. in uh, English painters. The other great one, of course, was the guy behind Paddington Bear. I saw that movie. Yeah, same guy. Live action movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was okay. I liked it. Did you really see it? Yeah, I did see it. It was very, very endearing. Yes, it was cute. Yeah, it was sweet. There's a, a sequel. Yes, I've seen both. Well, you have a family. Of exactly. course you have. Yeah. So no, if you look at his paintings, it is, some of them do remind you of, if you, again, if you've looked at the crime scenes, uh, they remind you of the crime scenes of, of some of uh, Jack's uh, victims. Right. Okay. It is also believed that Sickert was impotent after having several surgeries on his penis. Experts have always suggested that Jack the Ripper may have had some kind of impotence problem, which is why he targeted prostitutes so violently. And many serial killers throughout history have been proven to be impotent or suffer from sexual problems as the act of killing becomes their only means of sexual fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Cornwall also claims she found mitochondrial DNA on several of Jack the Ripper's letters, which were a match to several letters written by Sickert. But it still wasn't enough to convince experts that Sickert was behind London's Jack the Ripper murders. 
Unfortunately, Sickert passed away in 1942 and took his many secrets to the grave. Francis Craig. In recent years, many ripperologists, which is the people who continue to investigate this, or what they call themselves. I love that. The ripperologists. Yeah. I've started, that's a great name. They've started believing that Mary Jane Kelly's husband, Francis Spursheim Craig, was behind all the Jack the Ripper killings in London. Really? Yes. Craig was working as a reporter at the time of the murders and was even covering the police courts and inquests on the Whitechapel murders, as well as other crimes in London's East End. Craig was born in 1837, was the son of a well-known Victorian social reformer, and some people suggested that Craig was suffering from a mental illness, or more specifically, a schizotypal personality disorder. He lived in Whitechapel on Mile End Road, which is just seven minutes away from the first Jack the Ripper murder scene, and in 1884, he married Elizabeth Weston Davies, who is believed to have been a prostitute who went by the name of Mary Jane Kelly, Jack the Ripper's final victim. Theories suggest that once Craig discovered his wife was working as a prostitute, she went into hiding in the East End under her, uh, under her pseudonym. Craig started plotting her murder, but disguised his involvement by killing other prostitutes in the area beforehand. Ah. Next is the big one, I think. I think this is, in my opinion, the most likely. Oh, really? I would have thought that the doctor that you mentioned as, as your first suspect was the... Kind of bookended it. Okay, okay. So they're not in order of um, likelihood. I would say the first and this one I'm about to talk about are the, the Druid and, and uh, Aaron Kosminski, I would say, are our two leading suspects. Okay, so let's hear it. So severally, severally, several highly esteemed police officers believed that the Polish barber, Aaron Kosminski, was behind the Jack the Ripper murders. Kosminski was born in Russia and had settled in London in the early 1880s. Kosminski was Jewish and was living and working as a hairdresser in Whitechapel during the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. He apparently had a very strong hatred of women, had homicidal tendencies, and was even sent to an asylum in 1889, where he died shortly after. Oh. Police documents from the time of the Jack the Ripper murders revealed that officials suspected a man by the name of Kosminski, although Aaron Kosminski wasn't pinpointed as a suspect until many years later. Now get this, Riley. In 2011, forensic geneticist Dr. Yari Luhalainen of Liverpool John Moores University studied the Catherine Edo shawl using a level of DNA analysis that was only recently possible. This is that piece that was found under the graffiti. Remember the, but the Jews? Yes, absolutely. So they, yeah. they still have a portion of this, sh this shawl that her relatives kept and have passed down through the ages. Uh -huh. Lua identified the dark splotches on the shawl as stains consistent with, and I quote, arterial blood splatter caused by slashing. He also discovered evidence of split body parts consistent with a kidney removal, as well as the presence of seminal fluid. Lua found that mitochondrial DNA taken from the shawl matched that taken from Karen Miller, a direct descendant of Edo's, as well as a female descendant of Kosminski's sister, Matilda, provided swabs of mitochondrial DNA from the inside of her mouth. And just to actually to go back on that, so it means that the, those two people's DNA was on the shawl. And they're, okay. and they're proving that through the relatives of these people, taking their DNA now and it matches. There's, there's enough of a match from 120 years ago at that point. I'm following. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. There's a theory that the shawl was also of too fine a quality to have been worn by a London prostitute and belonged, in fact, to Jack the Ripper and not Eddowes. 
using nuclear magnetic resonance. Another Liverpool, uh, John Moore's University of Science, Dr. Fayez Ishmael, determined that the fabric's age predated the 1888 murders and was likely made near St. Petersburg, Russia, the region of Poland where Kosminski was born. Okay. Many ripperologists, however, are not so certain. The report has generated plenty of skeptics, some of whom have noted that the laboratory analysis has yet to be published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal and that Luhalainen was only able to test mitochondrial DNA, which passed down from mothers to children and, uh, and offers much less of a unique identifier than nuclear DNA. Meaning there's a lot of people that would maybe have that DNA because it's, you know, there's so many offshoots of it. It's more of a, yeah. a general canvas that matches as opposed to a, a specific set of DNA instructions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you have it. Those are your big suspects. There is the story of Jack the Ripper. Wow. It's a lot, man. That's a lot. I don't even, yeah. You're drinking beer tonight. I'm drinking a Guinness. A Guinness, yes. the beer of your people. The beer of my people. Dan, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. It's such a huge story. I mean, it's really kind of the first sensational serial killer case in history, right? Yes, and it's also the time, uh, an era of policing where they're starting to look out for this type of thing. And the the investigative work is more scientific Right. So they're, mm-hmm. they are analyzing the possible psychology of the murderer and, and looking for, uh, actual physical evidence that can scientifically prove that the murderer is the, the, the sorry, the suspect is indeed the murderer. So there's all that sort of playing into it too. There's the weird letters. There's the fact that the person has never been caught. Yeah. This is right up there with the, um, Zodiac killer. Yeah, well, and quite a few others. The idea of the correspondence to, um, I mean, so many murderers are proud of what they do and they want the notoriety that goes with it, right? So the writing of the, uh, of the, the cards or what have you, that first letter that you wrote, makes perfect sense to me. I just, oh, I hope it wasn't the fucking press just trying to milk as much as they could out of a sensational story. That's so douchey. And and if it is, though, it might make sense then that if the From Hell letter, the last one, is legitimate, that it is, in fact, Kosminski, because English was not his first language. Right, right. Who do you think it was? I think it's Kosminski. Okay. I do. You know, it's hard. You don't want to blame someone and I know they're dead and long gone and my words now have no impact on them. It just, I don't know, but I would lean towards him as being the culprit. And, and you know, what's interesting though, I'll say this, and I'm actually going to borrow from Rumbelow, Donald Rumbelow, who says it's more likely that it's someone that we haven't even considered. Of course. Some anonymous person who was not a name who did the murders that we, we don't know and never will know. I agree with that hypothesis. And that's the one that I actually, if, if, of the ones I mentioned, I think it's Kosminski, but in reality, I think there's a really good chance it's no one that anyone has considered yet. And I'm sure that there's a, a, a incredible likelihood that there are more victims that are just not attributed to that particular Quite murderer. possibly, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it would have been much easier to get away with a crime like that in that particular context, in that time, than it would be now. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much easier. You know, what's really interesting, too, is when you were talking about it and you jumped to the 1900s, it's funny how, I don't know if you do this or not, but in my head, when I attribute anything to the 1800s, I don't think of it carrying over into the 1900s. So the idea of that murderer still being alive in like 1930 or 1940 kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, because I, I I think of like top hats and carriages and old timey shit, and it really isn't that long ago. Well, even like recently, I saw photos uh, from the 1940s in the United States, and uh, they're of Civil War vets. Mm-hmm. So these are guys that were alive in the 18, you know, would have been 15, 20 years old in the 1860s. Yeah, and there they are in the 1940s, an era that is within reach of for our generation at least. You know, yeah. um, that's our, our the era our our parents were born in. Well, yeah, my both my parents were born in the 30s. Yeah, mine in the 40s, and and so it's um it that that doesn't seem like that long ago. And here, like that, those people are ancient history almost, right? It's, yeah, it's neat. It's neat, and I know I know it's exactly what you're talking about because we're we were mentioning the reporter, you know, 1930 coming in and saying actually I was. That's the time of, of like Nazi Germany coming into power yeah. and all that. So yeah. it's incredible, you know, it's incredible when you think about it just from, and I know how much you love history. So let's talk. It's incredible how much the world changed in such a short time between like 1880 and let's say 1950. It's an incredible amount of time how everything changed, everything. Electricity, right? Electricity yeah, changed the world, exactly. right? And industrialization changed the world. We could mass produce stuff like like nobody's business. And just like, and then transportation. I mean, like I always think of the 50s as the big era of the car, right? Because mm-hmm. it's post-World War II. And it's just like so much happened. Like our parents lived through a lot. Like for us, it's, I guess our, us, it would be the fucking internet and electronics. Like that, that whole thing. The digital like the age. internet changed yeah. life. Yeah. Right. The internet uh, and and just the rise of the digital era, computers. Yeah. Changed everything. You know, the other day I was cooking something, and I realized that, like, in the old olden times when I was young, and this is the eighties, nineties, whatever, before the internet was so prominent, I would have to go and look through cookbooks mm-hmm. to find ways to cook stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds trivial and ridiculous, but it was a big deal. Like I'd have to, oh, I'll go this cookbook or that or, you Think know. of our podcast. Yeah, finding it. Oh, we'd be in the library. The library. And now, I mean, I did buy the the Rumbelow book and I do like my books. I'm still a book lover and, I, and an avid reader. But uh, most of my research for this was done online. Oh, but the audience can't see this, but who the fuck would put that giant, I, like big sticker right over Jack? I, because I, well, look, look at the back of it. I bought it used. Oh, okay. Cause I'm like, they put a giant sticker on it. Yeah, I bought this used and it was from a bookstore in London that I got it. Oh, well, you know, when you mentioned Spitalfields, um, that's where I stayed last time. I was right next to Whitechapel. Oh, oh yeah. And isn't it very gentrified now, that area? Oh, it's super boho, fabulous. It's an area I would actually love to live in. And um, there's a million Whitechapel walking tours. Yes. Yeah. I've heard that. I never, I didn't, I've been to London, but I didn't would do that uh, that tour i hate them i don't i don't like i just found a fish and chip stand and i planted myself next to it and i 
<laughs> Every time I got hungry, I just say, give me more, man. And, and I just ate fish and chips for the entire three weeks that I was in London. I just saw everything I could, and um, I can't wait. You know, my trip to Scotland is coming up, and I'm so excited. We're going on a. We're going to take. A, we're going to rent a car, and we're going to drive through the Highlands for five days. Be careful of what I did that, and the roads are narrow. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll be fine. Who, who's we'll going to drive? Uh, not me. Okay, I'm a pretty you know good driver but you're driving on the wrong side of the road it changes everything yeah we're going to take it easy sorry um, to our and uk listeners the right side of the road we drive on the wrong side to our canadian and american listeners the right side of the road they drive on australia the they do that as well don't they aren't they on the other side are they i don't know I'm trying to think of all the australian movies i've seen i don't know. Do you know what australian cinema is very good it's, it makes me angry because... Crocodile like, Dundee. No, shut up. Crocodile Australia, Dundee 2. Australian uh, cinema, Dan, if we could have a serious Romper moment, Romper Stomper. Oh, I hate that's a right good now. No, that's, I was being serious. That is a good movie. Anyway, Australia makes some really damn good movies. It's a shame that um, Canadian cinema isn't as robust and as worldwide as Australian. But okay, we're, we're gone way over time. I, you can tell 3. I'm lonely. You can tell I haven't talked to people in a while because I just want to babble all night. Black Hole. The Black Hole, the Disney movie? Yeah, that's Australian. You're a fool. It's not Australian. The Poseidon Adventure. You know, I love that movie. I do too. Ernest Borgnine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Airwolf, the series Airwolf was filmed in Australia. Okay. Anyway, anyway folks, um, Dan, is that it? That's it. Yeah, you're, and you're no more babbling. Oh, oh uh, sure hey, I'm, geez, I'm out of, I'm out of uh, practice. Folks, if you have enjoyed listening to the word of, wait, hold on. Let me start that over Do, again. You know what I also should note? Like we went into almost an hour and a half. We should have split this in half. No, no, no. This is fine. Other podcasts go long. This is not that long. Do you long. listen to them all though? Yes, listen I'm to listening to, to ones that are four hours an episode. You just listen to them in chunks. Do you know, I have, I'll say one more thing before we let our listeners go. You wouldn't believe how many podcasts I've dropped lately. Why? Because they don't shut up at the beginning about the stuff that they're trying to shill. Oh. Like, yeah. join our Patreon, um, you know, buy the merch. Um, you know, in the case of, I used to love um, My Favorite Murder, they talk way fucking too much about all their other products that they, they, they've created... Uh, a network of a podcast network and they spend way too much time. Like it, it takes 20 to 25 minutes to get through all of their promotional bullshit. And there's other shows like that too. There's one called, and that's why we drink and I've, I've dropped it. I just can't listen to it. I'd be happy to, to show that stuff if we could make some serious money off of it. Well, like you and I agreed though, if we're ever going to talk about shit like that, we're doing it at the end. At the end. Yeah. I'm not making people have to wade through that nonsense. It's not fair. Anyway, we love our audience. Yes. Keep going. Thanks very much, uh, everyone, for sticking around during our hiatus. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting tired because I'm starting to not make any sense as I say this. Uh, if you enjoy listening to The Weird, please feel free to share the word of The Weird uh, with any s number of different types of beings, whether they be celestial, uh, elemental, uh, your table, if it's sentient. Maybe uh, preferably a, a table in a common area so it could talk to other people. If you're just telling your table in your kitchen, that's not really going to help get the word of the weird out there. So, folks, Or in a cafeteria so we could tell other tables. Oh, I love your mind, Riley. Folks, uh, thank you for listening to our show. We appreciate yeah. your support. Good night, everybody. 
See you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, man, it's the Bagster. Yo, Bagster!